This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, January 31st, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. Terry Teachout was a polymath, a jazz musician, a deadline editorialist, but he's best known as the Wall Street Journal's national theater critic. Teachout died just over a week ago at the age of 65. Among his many friends, Cato's Walter Olson, who details why Terry Teachout was a writer worth reading and appreciating. Years ago, I was gifted a biography of H.L. Mencken, uh, by Terry Teachout. Uh, I'm sorry, he didn't give me the biography, but it was the book that that he wrote about H.L. Mencken. And it wasn't until years later that I knew anything about him other than that book. And uh, having spent just a little bit of time reading about him and having read him now for, for years, what an amazing and wide-ranging uh, career he had. Indeed, it's hard to think of any contemporary figure who wrote as widely about as many different arts and as wide a sweep from ballet and dance, one of his first loves, to jazz, where he was a jazz musician, as well as writing about jazz throughout his adult life, too, being theater critic for The Wall Street Journal, cultural critic for commentary, uh, doing podcasts on topics that included Broadway theater and film noir, and many, many others. So for I think there are some lessons here for young people who may not know what they want to do with their lives, frankly, uh, because uh, Terry Teachout had worked in daily newspapers for a long time, writing not just about culture. By no means just about culture. And in his early years, he picked up the suite of skills that you can learn through daily newspapering, which included being able to turn around copy very quickly. When Stephen Sondheim died, he had his newly written obituary at the Wall Street Journal within one hour. And being able to get on with the you know writer's block and all of the other fancy ways of describing that are complained of by you know, many people who try to do cultural writing, uh, Terry, as far as I know, never complained about it. And working at the New York Daily News for several years, doing things like turning around editorials about the news of the day before, will do that for you. So whenever I, because I followed him on Twitter and, of course, read a lot of his stuff at the the Wall Street Journal, something you noted before we started recording was that when he wrote about theater, he wrote with the production in mind for people who might want to produce it elsewhere. Very much so. And Terry was very much aware of the conditions of production, to use a $10 phrase, of the arts that he wrote about. And so when he would write about theater, for example, he would uh, bear in mind keenly whether this could be done by regional and community theaters, which would come down often to a matter of how many actors were required, how many set changes were required, how long was it, and whether it was best staged at, in a large Broadway theater, in a mid-sized theater, or in an intimate theater, and he would be full of opinions, which made it less surprising when he later went into the actual composition of plays and 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 saw them staged and and opera librettos too. He was always there for trying to think through the questions of why does jazz, for example, sound why it does the way it does, based on the unusual conditions, migrant musicians, very much at the economic margin, trying to assemble the right combination of instruments and, and, and the like. And 
you know, the very different circumstances of symphony orchestras. Right. One thing that I I think is uh, notable here, and, you know, this is a podcast that's for the most part about policy, a little less about politics, and even less about culture, was the degree to which he appeared to keep his politics to himself. He definitely uh, walked a very careful line on this in several different ways. You could tell, both from the publications that he wrote for, and that those included the Wall Street Journal and Commentary and and many others, that he was not a man of the left. And in the particular cultural areas that he chose to make his life's work, there could be, you know, no shock, a, a bit of pressure on people who were visibly not men or women of the left. But he had a couple of deeply grounded philosophical commitments. One was that art should be judged on its own sake. He once said that he would praise a good play, whether it came from someone he politically disagreed with or not. It didn't mean he had to accept an invitation to go to dinner at that person's house, but he did have an obligation to say if they'd written a good play. And so he, you know, he disliked didactic and politically motivated art, and he regularly recognized in his reviews. And I found this a very good tip-off, actually, because like so many people, I I'm convinced, talking to people around the country, that I was one of a large number of people who took my theater cues from Terry's reviews in the Wall Street Journal. Generally, he had about a 90% concord rate, where if he didn't like it, I also wouldn't like it, and, and, and vice versa. And I learned to, what were the 10%, because he had his own, like like everyone, he, you know, he had his own little things that he didn't like or, or did like based on, you know, personal history and so forth. But but when he said that a left-winger had written a good play, invariably, I would overcome my initial suspicion that perhaps this was another didactic work like so many that we have seen. And sure enough, it would be good. And so there was that. He was scrupulously fair, I believe, by his own lights and by the lights of those he reviewed. Uh, as the late Florence King once wrote after writing a rave review of a radical feminist, she was, of course, not a radical feminist, she said, it's fun to be fair. And I've always taken that as a reviewer's motto. It's fun to be fair. It shows your power when you're fair. So there was that. But beyond that, he took care to stay friends on a personal level, even with people he knew he disagreed with so much. And I sometimes asked him, because we were friends for, whatever, 35 years, I asked him about certain notorious critics who I saw as terribly politicized. And invariably, he had found some way of connecting personally so that they could be colleagues and so that they could share at least some of their happiness about getting to review the arts. Maintaining those personal relationships unsundered, even despite the winds that we all know are blowing in American culture today. Uh, I see that as a wonderful example. This is a little odd to admit. It probably says too much about me. But whenever uh, Terry Teachout liked something that I already liked, <laughs> I felt really good. <laughs> like It's like, this guy has such much better taste than I do, and I like something that he likes well, then it, it, it is definitely great. Well, Another thing I did, which I'm sure I had in common with many people, is that uh, I would check out Terry's opinion after I had caught up with some classic movie or play uh, to see whether or not we were in Concord, as usual, or occasionally, as with you know certain Thornton Wilder plays, you know maybe not so much in Concord because he just liked the Dickens out of Thornton Wilder, as Wilder himself might have had a character say, and he did award extra 
points for middle America, for example. He found that it was unfairly run down by the typical artistic critical posture, and he was going to be that rare intellectual who had grown up in the American countryside, had gone to the big city, and had not culturally turned into an oppositional figure toward the people he grew up with. And so I made allowances for his giving a few extra points to something that presented middle America in an extra good light, because he always was charmed by that. And all that having been said, it's not easy to tease out an ideological posture from what he liked and what he didn't like once you get past that. You may think of him as glorifying America, and that is certainly true because if you look at his biographies, Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong, H.L. Mencken, George Balanchine, who of course wound up as an American figure, if not originally, um, they are certainly glorifying the idea that America is producing front-rank world cultural figures and has nothing to apologize for, and America need not be in this sort of supplicant sprawl with respect to European culture, which you know, that lasted, I don't know whether it's still a characteristic of our criticism, but the, you, you could see Terry throwing little darts at European opera direction, for example, with its sort of blasé attitude of, we've all done the operas the straight way, and now let's do them in the most radically inappropriate way we can think of and cheer the director. Well, because he was so fair, he did like and praise some opera productions which turned the you know, premise of the original setting on their head. But in general, he was inclined to scoff. And once again, this is a bit of a clue to his wider stance, which is he knew all about the debates about highbrow, lowbrow, and middlebrow. And he, more than once in his writing, described the way in which middlebrow had been squeezed out, kind of, after having been in a culturally somewhat prestigious, if not dominant, position during his youth, in which things like the elevating TV shows and uh, Book of the Month Club and various other things that attempted to raise the, to be popular while at the same time flattering the public into being a little better read than it had started out. And modern cultural criticism, as, as he pointed out in somewhat unhappy tones, had tended to consist of highbrow people grabbing a, a perceived partnership with lowbrow art, with kitsch, with obviously unrespectable art attempts, declaring those to be just as good as anything else, and really having a hostility only toward the middle brow. And there was, of course, it, Terry didn't write this way, but others have written about how this is a, a bit like the John Lindsay years in New York, where there was a, you know, high-low high alliance <laughs> against the middle class. You know, that, that may be overthinking it, but it was nonetheless true that middle brow cultural aspiration in which people could, through self-improvement and through choosing the right kind of engagement with culture, they would not become Greenwich Village intellectuals, but they would become better citizens, more thoughtful citizens, and they'd have a lot of fun in the process. He saw this as nothing to scoff at. So if, if you had to recommend some of his writings to people, what would they be? Well, the biographies are off on their own. And of course, books are a format that are their own thing. And with those, the most popular one is Louis Armstrong. And I'll tell you something about his biography while we're on it, or his four biographies, which is 
Someone told me, and I think it was him, after writing the H.L. Mencken volume, because as someone who had idolized Mencken, I noticed that the tone was rather cool. The tone was, you know, clinical and admiring of Mencken's enormous accomplishments, but nonetheless cool. And so I think it was Terry who told me, when you go into writing someone's biography, make sure you really, really, really like them extravagantly, because by the time you're done, you're not going to like them as much. And, uh, I think that in his long dive, years-long dive into Mencken's work, he came to uh, be more swayed by the fact that Mencken had caused so much pain and grief uh, among those he criticized. He had been so devastating in his attacks on middle American culture and the rest. And you notice that each of the biographical subjects that Terry chose later were ones, I think, that he knew going in he wouldn't have to withdraw some support from. And and he remained in a tremendously admiring posture of the three artistic figures he then took on. But uh, you won't really get, I think, from the biographies alone, the reason why he had such a wide public. You need the short pieces for that, because that was what most of what he wrote. And it was the most varied, it was the most characteristic, I think, form of, of his writing, was short writing on deadline. And there, you know, pick your artistic form and start with what Terry wrote about it. If you like movies, which is probably the most popular of these different formats that we talk about, Terry arrived at writing about movies relatively late. But once again, his intense interest in how the mode of production worked. And again, coming in without some of the typical presuppositions that we see in modern criticism, uh, he didn't feel an obligation to hate the studio system. Uh, he didn't feel an obligation to love it either, you know, either for you know, lowbrow or highbrow reasons. Uh, he wanted to deal with its productions on their own merits, recognizing that sometimes it had hit the heights of genuine art. And of course, lots of times it, it turned out schlock that was not particularly worth watching. But again, he would be aware of the pressures placed on actors by their agents. He would be aware of the cost of production and all the different ways in which it shaped who was producing what in movies, as in each of these other forms. So start with movies if movies are your thing. Uh, but theater is probably the area that he's best known for writing about. Uh, I am lucky because theater is one of my things, and he is a perfect way into it. We haven't talked about one of the great things that he did for American culture, which is to be the national theater reviewer. As we know, there's a core of Broadway theater reviewers who review Broadway shows, uh, typically don't go out of town, uh, which means that most American theatrical effort completely gets bit by them. And Terry would spend much of each year flying out not just to Chicago or Los Angeles, but to Spring Grove, Wisconsin, or Sarasota, Florida, uh, wherever there were uh, interesting or ambitious productions. And that was a tremendous boost in recognition and encouragement, not only for all the talented players and theaters in those places, but also for young playwrights. Because if you review only Broadway, you tend not to review young playwrights until they've become somewhat established. Well, Terry would get earlier uh, efforts by some of these same playwrights and would be the one who had first brought uh, many young playwrights to national attention. You wonder if anyone will step into that role, because of course it took the financial resources for the Wall Street Journal to do it. Yeah. So uh, he writes in his 15 Commandments for Reviewers, 
Uh, be fair but not flabby. Don't hold the podunk chamber players to the same standards as the Vienna Philharmonic. Everybody gets points for showing up and more points for getting the curtain up, though not necessarily an A. Uh, if the performance is terrible, say so. But insofar as possible, side with its strengths. Old Irish proverb, if you can't be easy, be as easy as you can. For uh, young people, um, and we're speaking broadly to a libertarian audience, what is the value of being someone who is consuming and commenting on popular culture with a fundamental fairness and trying to keep uh, ideology out of it? Well, in the first place, it flexes the aesthetic muscles and ensures they are not just dominated by the ideological instincts because aesthetics is something different and you want something to be beautiful independent of whether you want it to be speaking a political truth. And you also want to make sure that there is talent out there that genuinely knows how to create a character on the stage, genuinely knows how to draw you into a musical performance. And you can't get that by weighing who agrees with you most. You have to get out there and look or listen. So you have to, in cultural criticism, you have to allow those other senses, and Terry had them beautifully, to to override sometimes your original presumption about whether you'd like something or not. And the other half of it is important too, which is that you can't just let people off for having gotten the curtain to rise, uh, because you need to be encouraging the standards to improve. You need to be clearing the field of some who should not be on it so that those can shine who are indeed the best talents being produced. Walter Olson is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.